0: All right, five, four, four, three, three,
1: three. two. <laughs> Why are you slowing down so much?
0: Welcome to season three of the Compact Nation podcast. We're back after a little bit of a summer hiatus, and we've been doing some work on this, so we've got some exciting changes to talk about. But first, some introductions um, in case you're new or just forgot what we sound like. This is Emily Shields, executive director of Iowa Campus Compact.
1: And I'm Andrew Seligson, president of Campus Compact.
0: So one of our big changes is the voice you're not hearing right now. Uh, J.R. Jameson, uh, director of Indiana Campus Compact, for reasons that he will get into when he joins us a little later in the podcast, is no longer going to be a co-host of the podcast. He'll be back as a guest host, and there are really exciting reasons for the change, and um, we will uh talk to him a little bit later in the episode about some of those things um so that's one change another change is that we are replacing jr just kidding there's no such thing as replacing jr but uh vice president for network leadership of national campus compact marisol morales will be joining us as a co-host of the podcast But on future episodes, Um, Marisol wasn't able to join us today. But Andrew, do you want to say a little bit about her role and maybe what our listeners can expect with her joining us on the podcast?
1: Absolutely. So Marisol has kind of a two-dimensional role at Campus Compact. She is, as her title suggests, network leadership. She's kind of the the point of contact from the national office for the leaders of our state and regional compacts around the country, helping to support their work uh, and helping make all of us greater than the sum of our parts. Uh, She also leads our work in the areas of equity, inclusion, and diversity. And part of the idea is that we want those things to be interconnected, that that, the, that second category of work isn't separate from everything else we do. It's integrated into the ways we operate nationally and across the country. Uh, so Marisol has been with us now for just about nine months and has been helping make us better. And we're excited that she's going to be uh, joining us on the podcast.
0: I am really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun to have her on. Um, if you'll bring an interesting perspective and certainly a lot of fun. Uh, another new person we have on the podcast is more of a silent participant. We have a new producer for the podcast, so she'll be on and helping us, um, just really make it work and come together. So Molly Leaper, Molly, just say hi for a second. You can do that. Hello. (laughs) Why don't you, will you tell everybody who you are and what you do? Sure. I
2: am the communications manager for Campus Compact, and I am really excited to be more involved in the podcast. It's going to be very fun.
1: And Molly is uh, talking to us this morning from a secure location in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We can't reveal more than that.
0: Yes, yes. And just as a note, it is very early in the morning in Iowa, recording from my um, lovely Basement, my home podcast studio, aka okay, my basement. <laughs> so I've I've only had one cup of coffee, and I need to be forgiven for that. Um, okay, so we're gonna have a fair number of other changes on the podcast this year, and um, thanks to those of you who completed our survey, helped give us some feedback. We are mixing things up a little bit, and this episode is going to be sort of an experiment with, with a lot of those things. We will still be doing longer interviews and um, have some really excited guests coming up for that. But a couple of our episodes each month are going to be just a little more, um, the three of us as co-hosts, bringing on a couple people for short segments, but having a little more discussion about some of the things going on in the field and the world, different things like that. So one of the things we're planning to do is called Bright Spots. We will be bringing on people from across our network to talk about exciting things in their work. And this time we brought on JR Jameson so that he can bid a fond adieu to our listeners, but also share some of the exciting things he has going on um, that were his reasons for not being able to continue to co-host. So we'll go to our interview with JR. Well, hello, JR. Hi. Thank you for coming on the Compact Nation podcast today.
2: Absolutely. It's kind of strange to be, I guess, the guest.
0: It is a little bit, um, but we're excited to talk to you. And we want to start with, so we kind of started out the episode explaining that we have a new host um, replacing, though you can never be replaced.
1: Can't replace JR. JR. (laughs) JR.
0: But we didn't really explain to everyone the exciting developments in your life that have led to that. So
2: fill us in. Yeah. Well, first, you guys fired me from the podcast. I'm just kidding. That's actually not true. No, I'm extremely sad to leave the podcast because this was a fun thing to do, but I did get a really great opportunity, two opportunities actually, that has made my life really complicated this fall and I had to make hard decisions about what I could give time to and what I couldn't. And so one of those is that I signed with a literary agent in June for my memoir and I'm deep in the editing process of that And all of my edits are due back to my agent on October 1st. And then we're going on submission to have a publishing house acquire the book. So hopefully my memoir will be coming out in about the next year to year and a half. And so that's taking... Yeah,
0: that's exciting. Can you tell us anything about it?
2: No, no, I'm just kidding. Ah. Yeah, I can. No, I'm a secret memoir. I signed myself to secrecy. No, Uh, it is a memoir about my relationship with my dad, who is fairly conservative and supported Trump during the 2016 election. And I'm fairly liberal in, in my take on the world, and we hadn't spent much time together for several years and this, uh, he asked me to go on a trip with him to his hometown in rural Missouri at the height of the 2016 election as a way for us to bond with one another. And we had to really determine during that trip if this experience would bring us together or if our political differences were enough to push us even further apart. And so the memoir is really centered around that but goes back and forth from growing up, my relationship with my dad and where we are in the current state.
0: Wow. So, as they say in, in advertising land, but that's not all. So, <laughs> you've got something else going on, right?
2: Yeah. And so, uh, around the same time, interestingly enough, we were approached by Indiana Public Radio. And by, by we, I mean my co-founder of The Facing Project, Kelsey Timmerman, to do a radio program for the Indiana NPR stations. And so we were thinking about like what that could look like, and so we pitched to them an idea of doing a show that would be This American Life meets StoryCorps, where we would do a little bit of commentary, but we would really focus in on the stories we've collected over the last five years, which is about 1,500 different stories on various topics from poverty to human trafficking and such. So uh, we pitched this idea to them around that. They liked it. We played around with it some, but the station head of Indiana Public Radio thought it could be something much bigger. So he started talking to other station heads and determined that we would put it out nationally, which is really awesome. And so that will come out. We've recorded the first four episodes. We did that in July. So on September... 20th, it will premiere uh, immediately following All Things Considered in the evening, depending on where you are in the country and if your station did pick it up because it's one of those things where it's put out there on the wire and your station may or may not pick it up. So I have no idea. I can't tell you if you're listening to this, if your area has it, but if... They do listen in on September 20th in the evening at 6.30 p.m., immediately following All Things Considered to listen to the Facing Project show. If your station in your area did not pick it up, it will be available on the NPR podcast app the following Monday after each Thursday. So the fourth Monday of every month, you can go to the NPR app and find the prior week's uh, episode. And uh, so, like I said, that will be available September 20th. And if you want to get it through podcast, September 24th is when it will be available through NPR's podcast app. So we're really excited about that. We'll see where it goes. Uh, I'd love for people to listen. So if you miss hearing my voice and and my wittiness on this show, you can tune in uh, through through the Facing Project show on NPR to listen.
0: Great. Well, we're excited for all of that, um, and congratulations. But we also brought you on to help us debut one of our new um, episode segments that we're calling Bright Spots. So there are bright spots all the time of great work happening um, all across the country and world. So we're going to be bringing on guests for a little um, mini peeks into those bright spots. So two minutes or less, what is your bright spot.
2: So we recently, and we, I mean, Indiana Campus Compact uh, partnered with the Journal of Community Engagement in Higher Education that is based at Indiana State University. They are a partner in the Pinta to paper writing retreat that's also put on through Campus Compact land. We partnered with them to do a special edition on critical service learning. This year marks the 10-year anniversary of Dr. Tania Mitchell's Uh, definition of critical service learning and so we're having her be the guest editor for that. So submissions are currently open for faculty or CEPs across the country who want to submit an article around critical service learning uh, for this. So submissions will be open until November 30th and the special edition should be released in May of 2019.
0: Well, that's really exciting.
2: So I'll just add, too, if people want to find the call out, call out they can go to the Journal of Community Engagement and Higher Education's uh, landing page. Just Google that, Journal of Community Engagement and Higher Education. And yeah, it's there the deadline? Yes, November 30th is when uh, the deadline is, and then it will be released in May of 2019. We are working on a press release that we'll send to Molly, and so it can go out through the Campus Compact world um, about that. So a little sneak preview of what's to come. Right.
0: Well, JR, it is uh, see you later and not goodbye, because, I mean we do technically still work together.
2: That's true. And I'll be I'll be back as a guest host. So if yes, ever, you need to fill in. in.
1: Yeah, so JR, congratulations on these exciting projects. And we look forward to listening and reading the things you're creating. Thank you for your contributions to this podcast, which uh, it's been a lot of fun doing this together. And yes, so we look forward to when you make your return.
2: Yeah, thank you all so much.
0: we're back so uh we will miss jr but as you can see there are exciting things to come and still places to find his voice okay so one of the new segments we're launching today is called what does that mean what does that mean you know one of the things in joining i think the higher ed field and one of the things a lot of people find in higher ed is just there's a lot of jargon and a lot of acronyms. And just generally some confusing language. And it's not always clear we all know what we're all talking about or what we all mean. So we're going to take some of the words that we use in this arena and really dig into what they mean and and don't mean, what we think they mean, and things like that. And we're going to jump right into an exciting one, I think, for both of us, given our um, careers and background, which is the word political, just simply political. So let's start with what, how do people use that word today?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think one of the things that makes it a challenging word and one of the reasons you know, I thought it was a great word for us to talk about together is that people, first of all, they use it in a negative way. Like, I I don't want to, that's too political. I don't want to be involved in, in that. And so that's one way it gets used. And I also think in the field of civic and community engagement in higher education, there's a fear of either appearing to be doing work that's political or getting involved in anything that is political. Um, And so I think it's worth thinking about, well, what does that word actually mean?
0: Right. I agree with you. I mean, I think a lot of times what people mean is partisan. They mean campaigns. They mean things they see as negative and divisive and argumentative. And I think that's, for me at least, I feel like some of it, um, I guess especially here is like the Iowa nice, like, oh, I'm not political. Like, I don't want to get into it. I don't want to debate you, like that kind of thing. I know I hear that a lot because people just sort of see me coming a mile away, ready for, ready for debate, and um, don't want to, don't want to dive into it. Um, So Andrew, I know this is some of what you have studied in your scholarly career. So I'd love what is what's your scholarly take? Like what does political actually mean? Um, if we're looking at it that way?
1: Yeah, so uh, you know, the word political comes originally from the Greek word polis, which means city. And then there was a derivative turn from that, polides, which is the, the Greek term for citizen and it's directly connected somebody who's part of the city who's a member of the city who makes up the city and so that which is political meant in that context things that related to the affairs of the city so there were things that might just be your own private personal affairs those were not inherently political but the things that had to do with what was shared among people who shared a place that they lived those are the political things and the people who take care of those, who work together to deal with whatever comes up for everybody, those are the citizens. And in Latin, we have the very same kind of parallel. So the Latin uh, civitas, meaning city, and then, uh, you know, the word citizen is derived from that directly. And there's the same kind of parallel that which... The, the people who make make uh, sense of what's going on for everybody are the citizens, and the unit was the city because that's where people lived. Obviously, in our context, things that are public go way beyond the scope of individual cities and places. Uh, most people, a lot, a lot of people in higher education talk about John Dewey's work on democracy and education, but he wrote a great book called The Public and Its Problems, and One of the central points of that book is you're part of a public with anybody where there are problems of a scope that you need to work together to solve them. So in the era of global climate change, we're all part of a global public because that can't be solved at the level of an individual city. There are other issues that we really can deal with at the local level. So for me, one of the difficult things when people say I'm not political or this isn't political, et cetera, is... If you care about the affairs of your place, the communities you're part of, those are political concerns. And that doesn't mean they're about power or about, you know, winning contests against other people. It means they're about uh, addressing those issues in ways that are consistent with your values individually and our shared values. And so, uh, you know, I don't think that there is a line between those things that are partisan and that have to do with winning elections, and those things that are for the good of the city generally. But the idea that we would want to stay away from those things that are about taking care of our places and our communities, that seems strange. And it's usually not really what people who say, I'm not political, want to communicate.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it's interesting to think about the roots of the word because, and some of the language you use. because when I tried to think about what do I think it means to me, it really was about that shared future. It's a you know a process of coming together and deciding what our future is going to be together. Um, and that's really what it means to me. But there's also, you know, the old saying that all politics is local. So it, you know, it seems that is, um, I guess that is demonstrated in the root of the word as well. And I think th- that to me is a little bit of something that we've lost in the conversation around political things because it seems like especially online you know things leap right to the big picture and um, you know these larger more theoretical debates and things like that and when we bring it really back down to the local okay like what's actually happening here um, to people we know and things like that it seems like people are capable of a much more nuanced conversation at times, um, which I, I guess, always appreciate. And that's part of what I think we need to work on in higher ed uh, teaching is how to have those conversations, but they can't be, you know, let's talk about, um, you know, climate change across the globe, just in this big, enormous way. Because I think the other thing that happens is people don't feel they're informed enough to be political. Like, I I don't always think it's about, you know, not wanting to be divisive. I think it's about also a fear that you just don't really know enough to be a part of the conversation and you don't take the time to get super, super informed. So you just sort of opt out in general. And how do we, I guess, I don't how do we get people past that? Because I feel like that's a reason people don't vote too, is that they just feel like overwhelmed, don't have time to get informed, so just sort of right off the whole thing.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons you see, you know, if you look at voter turnout, it's not great in presidential elections, but it just craters in midterm elections. And especially when it's local only elections, you know, you routinely see low double digit turnout in many, many places. And I think it is true. I mean, part of it is that we've lost local media to a large extent, so It's harder to get informed. You know, it's easy to find out about national things. It's very hard to find out in many places about local things. But it is, the paradox is that is the place where you can have tremendous influence, right? If you get involved, it doesn't take a very heavy lift. It's hard for me to move national policy, but I can actually change things about my neighborhood if I get involved and show up and complain a little bit or organize people to do something positive or whatever it is. Um, I heard – I was. It, this was – I was at a, uh, a, a workshop on uh, sort of research-based approaches to increasing youth voter turnout the other day, and there's a political scientist named Edie Goldenberg at the University of Michigan, and one of the things she said she always says to students, which I really liked, was – Um, She said, because she'll hear from them, look, I don't, there's all these things on the ballot I don't know about. There's all these judge races. There's, I don't feel like I'm informed enough to vote, just as you were saying, Emily. And she said, the first thing she says to them is, nobody knows about that stuff. She's like, you could walk down the halls of the political science department here at the University of Michigan, ask all my colleagues, who are these people on the ballot? They don't know either. And it's okay. You don't know. They don't know. You can all vote. Vote for the races you understand. Don't vote for the ones you don't, if you don't feel comfortable, whatever. But I do think, yeah, there's often a fear that politics is something complicated or politics is something a little dirty. And I'm just going to stay clear as opposed to politics is whether we are adequately providing for the education of our kids or, you know, maximizing our opportunities to have Uh, you know, uh, kind of a diverse transit infrastructure and opportunities for people to get places cheaply and safely or whatever it is, things that people care about on a daily basis. Uh, But yeah, it requires participation.
0: So do we, you know, how do we reclaim the word or use different words? I mean, I think that to me, that's always the debate is do you need to talk about it in different terms so that people feel more invited to the conversation or do we need to, you know, somehow reclaim the term and make it less, um, you know, either distasteful or um, intimidating or boring, whatever it is.
1: I, I think it's kind of a mix. I mean, I do think, I always like in almost any setting to try to find unpredictable ways of saying things because I think, it makes people more likely to actually listen to what you're saying. Um, So finding different vocabulary to describe what we're talking about Uh, I think is useful, but I think mixing in uses of the term so that people start to get a sense that, oh, you know, I think there are a lot of people who the, the word civic is positive for them and the word political is negative. And so using those interchangeably, I think it's not a bad thing to remind people that, you know, one happens to be the Latin way of saying it, one happens to be the Greek way, but they're the same thing. And they have to do with individuals taking responsibility for making their places better.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree. And I think just, um, again, bringing it back to the actual issues instead of just the larger, you should be involved in politics. No, but what things do you care about? You should be involved in that thing. And you're an expert on that thing, because it, maybe I'm more focused on the intimidation part right now, because I've worked with a lot of nonprofits, and that sort of seems to be the biggest barrier there is... The intimidation about what the laws are and what that allows, but also just the intimidation of, you know, I don't I'm not an expert in the legislative process, that kind of thing. And I always say you're an expert, though, in your experience, you're an expert in what your nonprofit does in that legislator. You know, maybe an expert in one or two things, but can't be an expert in everything that they're expected to vote on or understand and needs people like you to get involved and explain it in your terms and in how it plays out in your life. And that's all lobbying or advocacy really is
1: in a lot of ways. Um, Yeah, and just to be on the legal side, you know, what what the law for nonprofit organizations, all the law prohibits is engagement in election activities. So if you're working to try to get a party or an individual to win an election and you're using any resources of a nonprofit, that's, that's not allowed. But advocacy is allowed. It's got to be, you know, for most nonprofit organizations, it can only be a part of what they do because that's not the reason they got the nonprofit exemption. But, but they can advocate because, as you said, they have expertise on particular issues that they work on, and it makes sense for legislators to learn about that. And that's mostly what advocacy is, right, is informing public officials about things you know and care about. Uh, and I think you know very often again people are think they have to stay away from whole vast domains because of some general sense that they're not allowed to be in, involved in politics, and it's it's really not true, you know. Again, voter registration, as long as it's done on a nonpartisan basis, informing people about issues uh, that most of that doesn't even count as advocacy in the sense that the law means just sharing information about issues that are important to people. That's just free speech and participation in public life and all of that. And as you said, people who are working, whether it's at a in an, a leadership level or just if you're volunteering somewhere, you're probably seeing things on a daily basis that a legislator may not be, and you have an opportunity to inform them about it, even if you don't have a really strong view about exactly what the right solution is. You know, that's participation, and it it. Aids in the process
0: okay so as I mentioned earlier in the episode. We are not doing an interview this episode. We're launching a series of new segments where we're going to talk about different things happening in the field, um, help bring new research resources to you, think about different ideas. So the next one we're calling decoding research. We're going to take a research article, some new information in the field, maybe that you don't have time to read, and we're going to Share some information from it, share some ideas of what you might do with it. So with this one, we're going to continue the conversation about political activities and political learning and talk about a new report from the Institute for Democracy in Higher Education, Tufts. Some of you might be familiar with Nancy Thomas, the main researcher there. She does the National Study of
1: Learning, Voting, and Engagement. Learning, Voting,
0: and Engagement, otherwise known as NSOLV, right? Another um, acronym that gets thrown around. So basically, with that study, they've looked at voting on hundreds of campuses across the country and looked at, really done a deep dive into what is happening on campuses with higher rates of student voting. So they use that to put out a new report called Election Imperatives that really dives into that research, what they've learned from it, and some of the things that campuses might think about doing in order to really meet that civic mission and increase student participation in the political process. And therefore, hopefully, uh, political participation in the political process across the board. So, Andrew, what did you take away from this report? What were some of the biggest things that stood out to you as as things people should really walk away thinking about and, and, and considering how to do things differently? Well,
1: I think one, um, maybe the thing that most I take away from it is about ensuring that you're working on two fronts. And one of those fronts is... I think the one we tend to focus most on when we think about student voting, which is kind of the procedural front. So one of their, you know, recommendations is remove barriers to student voting. That is often a straightforward thing to do conceptually. It can be hard in practice. um, But. That's kind of on the process front, you know, set things up so it's easy for students to vote on your campus, through your campus, to register to vote, to get informed about voting procedures in all of the states that they might come from, depending on the kind of institution it is, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a second front. And, you know, I've learned a lot about this from the researchers at the Institute for Democracy and Higher Education and from other sources, which is really about creating a climate of political discussion, engagement, conversation on the campus. Um, and, you know, so they, one of the recommendations is establish a permanent and inclusive coalition to improve the climate for learning and participation. Uh, there's another one that's talk politics across campus, um, involve faculty across disciplines in elections. and. You know, I think from other sources, we've seen a lot of research showing that students, first of all, take a lot of signals from uh, their institution and the, the faculty and staff who make it up about what matters, and also just that generally, you know, people vote when they can see a reason to vote and even if it's pretty easy they won't turn out if they don't see why again i think the reason people show up for president, presidential elections and not midterm elections isn't that it's any harder to vote in midterm elections it's equally easy or hard but uh but they just don't know why they don't feel that it makes a difference in a way they can identify
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I it, so for me, that really stood out, the idea of moving from, you know, episodic activities like a voter registration drive here and, you know, a debate here to really thinking about political learning a lot more globally and across the campus. But that speaks to a lot of what we just talked about, you know, People don't want to touch that. Right. Politics seems like this thing that either has nothing to do with them or is distasteful or that kind of thing. Or maybe just, you know, I teach biology. Leave that to the political scientists. So how. But now we know from this research, other research, that it's the climate across the whole campus, that obviously every discipline is impacted by politics and has the ability to impact politics. But I think that's a question of, you know, how do we make that case? How do we convince um, more faculty members, more staff across campus that this is um, their job? It is something they have a responsibility for, but also should
1: want to be a part of. I mean, to me, one of the interesting things about this is that I think if you talk to any individual faculty member about things they believe their discipline can contribute to public discussions. That's the thing they'll get passionate about. They want, if they are biologists, they want people to understand biological processes that are affected by uh, land use decisions we make, or decisions about emissions, or the way that Uh, You know, the question of immunization in kids, you know, should be informed by an understanding of the biology involved, but then also uh, often think, right, that it's not their job to teach students to make those connections. And really, there's nobody else who can make those. You know, political scientists cannot really explain— why it's good public health policy to ensure that we have herd immunity through immunizations. There's no expertise there, but there is in a lot of people in other fields, and scientific fields. And so from my perspective, if colleges and universities, you know, for example, we talked about the fact many are nonprofits or they are public, they receive public subsidy in one form or another, they, they get that because they represent to the world that they serve the public good. And a big part of that is educating students. And if they're not educating students in ways that enable them to be informed participants in discussions about public issues, they're really not carrying out their their basic role. And again, I, I don't think that can happen without faculty members from across – Whole wide range of disciplines, pretty much every discipline, thinking about how students can make those connections. I mean, for me, one of the things I would love to see, and, and again, I think this is a role that creditors can play and increasingly are thinking about it, but from my perspective, if a student graduates college and cannot make connections between key issues in their academic field, their major, or what have you, connections between that and the public policy landscape. If they can't explain how something that's relevant in their academic field is affected by public policy, then we've just failed. You know, I just don't think they've received a decent college education. An economic student should know how monetary policy affects the economy. You know, a chemistry student should understand how emission standards affect air quality, right? And we, we could go on and on with this. And uh, yeah, to me, that should just be a basic expectation.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think, yeah, obviously I agree. And I think the way, again, look thinking about language, you know, framing it as talking about public issues, because I think, again, when you say to a, a faculty member, in some cases, have a political discussion in your classroom, that's like, well, wait, what? I'm supposed to, you know, talk about the latest scandal or the, you know, the upcoming election or that kind of thing. And then I'm supposed to, say how i feel and then you know the students will no i mean it's really about again that connection of what you're learning in the classroom to the public issues that might be impact, impacted by that and engaging the students in conversation i think that's what's really important because that's where we get into not just learning about politics and how things are affected but learning how to have those conversations and how to say well here's what i think and here's why but also listen to what someone else thinks and why and be able to kind of have that discussion. Obviously, um, we know that that's important. I think one of the other things, too, is they talk about, you know, looking at what your campus norms are. So, again, campuses are political entities in a way, in and of themselves, right? Because they're places where there's a shared future and where people come together to make decisions about the shared future of that campus. What's going to be taught and when, and what's going to who who is our who's serving lunch and what's you know what's what's happening in the dining hall. What new dorm are we going to build? All of those kind of discussions, and so that's an area that's really interesting to me too, because the norms of how those conversations and decisions happen impact. How students think about politics, because that's how, you know, shared decision making is being modeled to them.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we have opportunities to either communicate to students that their voice matters, that people are interested in what they think, about issues affecting the campus community and the larger world, or we can mess that up and essentially just run the institutions as if student voice doesn't matter, and, uh, and that basically we have no interest in anything other than whether they learn a small body of specialized knowledge and move on to the next thing. And I think, you know, in the US, we have both kinds of institutions. I mean, frankly, right, we see some that have seized the opportunity uh, in really extraordinary ways, and um, and then others that are kind of passing on it. And hopefully, I think we're moving in a direction of more and more seeing that they need to be in the game. Uh, and there are now really great examples to draw from. I, I mentioned I was at this workshop on research-based approaches to student voting or youth voting. And uh, Rob Donahue from Northwestern University was there. Northwestern has done an incredible job of integrating voter registration into their basic kind of registration and orientation processes. They now have registration rates well over 90% for the whole student body And in the last presidential election, 64% of their students actually cast a ballot, which is still low on an absolute number, but it's very high for a college campus. It was 15 percentage points higher than they had done in 2012. Um, You know, we can learn a lot from them. And there are other institutions, again, that are creating the kinds of environments in which students are motivated to vote, as well as just helping them overcome what are sometimes very real procedural barriers, uh, depending, again, on the state or the locality where they are.
0: Yeah, and the good thing about this report, honestly, is that it just, um, you know, it it goes through a lot of things campuses can be thinking about, whether you're an individual faculty member or an individual staff member, and you're just thinking about what you can do with your own classroom or your own program, or if you do have some ability to influence the larger uh, approach of the campus, there are a lot of really concrete ideas and resources. And a couple that really stood out to me, you know, there are some that just sort of can be used to make this a little more fun. So there's a right to vote web wheel from the, Brennan Center for Justice, I think it is, that they referenced that kind of goes through, again, how people, our history of who's had the right to vote when and that kind of thing and gives that background. And that's one thing they really point out is important for students to understand is how, how hard won the right to vote is um, in terms of thinking about making that happen. Um, another one for me is this idea of response team. So one of the things that I hear from presidents a lot is just sort of a, trying to think about what to do with the um, incidents happening on more and more campuses. So you'll have incidents of racial issues or just sort of something happens that gets everybody um, upset, fearful, frustrated, whatever the case may be. And feeling like that is a moment where both as a leader, they need to know what to do and be able to kind of bring everybody to back together across campus, but also that it's, a, it's a, one of those potential teachable moments, right? It's, an, it's an, a moment where the um, national politics or global politics become local in a very specific way. And so I think one of the things the report talks about that I'm very interested in is this idea of having a response team for things like that. So we have response teams for, you know, disasters that are more of a physical nature, I guess. This would be more about people who are trained in facilitation and ready to kind of take that local incident and make it a productive conversation across campus. So we're not... We're not sweeping it out of the rug. We're not bringing everyone together for a shouting match. We're saying, here's a thing that happened in our community. Um, how do you feel? What are we going to do about that?
1: Yeah, no, I think it's, uh, I mean, just to sort of bring it back, it's it's a great. The document, Election Imperatives, is a great summary of a lot of these opportunities. We will put a link to it in the show notes. And uh, you can also, if you Google Election Imperatives, I think that actually does it. Uh, But as I said, we'll put a link up.
0: So we're going to end every episode with a new segment we're calling public problem solvers. I think we're like most people uh, on a daily basis feeling a little overwhelmed by the news cycle and the number of um, sort of issues, problems, those things going on. But I think we all also know that somewhere at least below that surface, there are a lot of people successfully, in many cases, solving some of those public problems. And so, Andrew, I think you came prepared at least with a public problem solver to highlight. I'm going to turn it over to you.
1: Yeah, so this this was a story I saw uh, in The New York Times earlier this summer um, in the Fixes column that uh, is a collaboration among Tina Rosenberg and David Bornstein and others um, and they basically report about real efforts to solve problems. Uh, you know, their their idea is that so much of reporting is just about problems without any focus on solutions. So this isn't like feel-good, you know, there's nice people in your neighborhood kind of stories. It's real stories of real efforts that are kind of making a difference. So this story is about um, an effort that is based on the following sort of – Background that, you know, crime in New York, as in virtually all major cities in the United States, has dropped dramatically over the last 30 years, but it remains too high in particular places. And in New York, one of the sets of places it remains too high is in public housing. So New York, it turns out, has more than 2,000 buildings in its uh, network of public housing. And so they've been piloting this program, working with researchers at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Uh, And the basic idea is really simple. They have uh, people in uh, initially 15 complexes, training residents in community organizing techniques, uh, helping them learn about kind of the processes of getting problems in their uh, complexes and in their neighborhoods solved by the city uh, on the theory that if people experience themselves as being effective in making positive change uh, in their environment, they are more likely to do the kinds of things collectively that will reduce crime in their midst as well And essentially so far It seems to be working So in those 15 complexes Crime has been falling Since they launched the program um, There's still again There's still like higher rates of shootings and other things than um, in some places, but the rates have gone way down. Um, And so it's just an interesting effort that isn't kind of about just sort of one individual trying to do everything. It's about saying, look, all of us together can make this better. And it's kind of, I think it's an interesting contrast to the way people have talked about sort of broken windows, policing and whatever, the idea that, you know, and the, the focus is it's not about not having... The elevator's not working, or trash that's out there, or whatever. It's about people recognizing that they're in a position to do something about it. In such, you know, in a city where, for for real, for a very long time, often poor people, people of color, were not in a position to influence outcomes, uh, and and the the city is saying we're going to be open to listening to people we haven't before, and we think that's going to make a difference. And again, at least so far, it seems like it is.
0: That's a great example. I love that. Really good. Interesting story. I think for me, what I want to highlight is something mm, smaller and bigger, if that makes any sense. So we're coming off Labor Day. Yesterday was Labor Day um, holiday for celebrating work, (laughs) people, people doing doing the jobs that make our lives work. And when I think about local politics, that's a lot of what I think about, even even federally. So my dad was a postal worker for his whole career. So all the things that we're actually doing pretty well as a society, you know, trash gets picked up for the most part. And mail gets delivered. And, you know, there are lots of little things that actually day to day you don't need to complain about because they work. And yes, they work because there was, you know, a, a leader or a politician at some point who came up with the idea or championed it or that kind of thing. But mostly they work because there are people out there every day who take pride in doing that work. And so for me that's that's public problem solving. You know, you're figuring out, like in my dad's case, you're figuring out how to get the mail out in um in a rainstorm, you know, in hail as the as the saying goes. But I think that's across a lot of the different Things you think about in your community, you know, if there are nice flowers downtown, somebody figured out how to get that done, that kind of thing. So I think that um, that's my public problem solvers of today, I think, is just all the people doing the little things that make um, a big difference in terms of how our communities function and how we all are able to move forward together. True. Yes. Okay. so I think that is our podcast for today. Um, We will be back um, in two weeks. So we will still have podcasts every two weeks for the season three. Um, You can look forward to our next episode being a longer form interview that you might be more familiar with from the past. And then we'll come back with more segments after that. And we will have um, our new co-host, Marisol Morales, on board for that episode. Um, so as always, you can let us know what you like, don't like, would like to hear, things like that. And Molly's cat is in the podcast. <laughs> Hi, Molly's cat. <laughs> um, you can tell us what you think on social media, um, hashtag compact nation pod. You can email us at and molly's cat will respond um you can email us at podcast at compact.org um so thank you for listening and we'll be back in two weeks
1: to the compact nation podcast
0: the podcast The Compact Nation podcast is produced by Molly Leeper, Communications Manager for Campus Compact. Campus Compact is based in Boston, Massachusetts, and has over 1,000 member colleges and universities across the country and beyond. If you want to learn more about Campus Compact, visit us at compact.org. You can send your comments, questions, and show ideas to podcast at compact.org or find us on social media with hashtag CompactNationPod or find us on social media with hashtag CompactNationPod. You can find our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and tell your friends.